All right, Church Advent, how are you doing? We hope that every single one of us has been taking advantage of this opportunity that we have to focus on the one thing that matters most, Jesus Christ. We have already decided that we don't want to be drowning in debt by the end of this Christmas season. Instead, we want to be rich in love and grace toward one another because that's the example that Christ set for us. Um, we talked about how we don't want to be exhausted because we are running around doing all the things the world tells us we have to do to have a Merry Christmas. We don't have, they're not bad necessarily, but we want to be sure that we're gaining our greatest contentment from our peace and our rest that we find in Christ. Last week, we talked about how we don't ever have to feel alone again because Christ came. He is Emmanuel. He is with us. And by faith, he is still with us because his Holy Spirit lives in us. Church, at the end of Christmas, we don't want to be dead inside because we've allowed all the, the traditions and expectations of the holiday just suck the life right out of us, right? We want to be alive in Christ because we have focused our entire being, all of our energy, all of our time on the one thing that matters most, our relationship with Jesus Christ. So let's watch the video to see what we're focusing on this week. to the world. The Lord has come. But sometimes it can be really hard to sing those words. Because if we're honest, when things aren't right in the deepest parts of who we are, our hearts and our souls, joy is the last thing that we're feeling. The thing is that when we look to the things of this world for our joy, our marriages, 
our kids, our jobs, our health, our bank accounts, the packages under the tree. My goodness, y'all, it's no wonder that we're depressed. Nothing in this world fulfills us. But listen, none of it was ever meant to. We weren't made for this world. God is shaping us for life in his kingdom. Right before Jesus went to the cross, he was teaching his disciples about what it means to truly love him. And it means that we will abide in him, obeying him and bearing much fruit for the kingdom. And Jesus said that when we do that, his joy will be in us and it will be complete. So church, this Christmas, it should be the most joyful time of the year. How could it not be? If you end up feeling empty and depressed by the time it's all said and done, it's, it's likely because you're looking for joy in the wrong places. And so we're seven days and one sleep away from Christmas. What can you and your family do to strip away all those things, those extraneous things that, that we don't need for a Merry Christmas so that we can find our hope and our joy and our peace? And Jesus alone, he's our one thing. May everything we do and say this Christmas season bring glory to God alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning, once again, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the joy that he came to bring us. And we thank you for your spirit who opens our eyes and awakens our dead hearts to truly see and experience the joy that we can have in relationship with Christ. We ask that you would help us throw off all the things that hinder that so that we can live for your glory alone. God, as David preaches, we ask that you would work powerfully in our hearts to transform us, that we might be fully devoted disciples. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right, so it's the fourth week in Advent. December goes really fast, doesn't it? Hard to believe we're already here. Seven and a wake up until we mark the birth of our Savior. And that's what that lighted candle over there represents. The light of Christ shining in the darkness of the world. And it's so important that we appreciate that contrast there between darkness and light. Because as Cami has been laying out for us throughout this entire Advent season, every single one of us has a choice to make. We can choose to engage in all the things that the world tells us we need to do to have a Merry Christmas, and then at the end we find ourselves completely dead, in debt, exhausted, alone, depressed. Or we can look through all that chaos, fix our eyes on Jesus, the light of the world, grow in our relationship with him, and then we'll find ourselves alive in Christ when it's all said and done. And when you look at it that way, it's actually not much of a choice, is it? So that is why we have been focusing our attention on John's account of the nativity, because he just cuts straight to the chase. No nonsense with him. So I want to begin today by rereading all that we've covered to date from John. Here are the first 13 verses of John's gospel message. This is what we covered in week one. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, 
and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then week two. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. And then last week, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And then our text for today. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let's pray. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we are not, make us. And what we have not, grant us. For Jesus' sake, amen. Now, I don't know about you, but I experience this overwhelming sense of peace whenever I read John's account. There is such clarity, such strength, such encouragement, and such hope in these words. Just the fact that Jesus was there in the beginning, before whenever it is that everything actually began. Not only that, there's also peace in knowing that every square inch of the cosmos was made through him, including mankind, who was made in his own image with a body, a mind, a heart, and a soul, so that man could live life to the very fullest, even able to be in a relationship with Almighty God. It's why the Son of God granted humans life, which John describes as the light of man. And as we learned, this word light means reason, understanding, but especially with regard to moral and spiritual truth. What an amazing gift we have, this ability to know right from wrong, and then the freedom to actually choose it. And choosing right is actually how we express our love for God. And if that weren't enough, what peace there is and knowing that God has a master plan that he set in place before the foundation of the world. He had this nation of people, Israel, that he chose to love as his own children. And so he led them out of Egyptian captivity and into the promised land, this land flowing with milk and honey that God set apart for his beloved children. And of course, all along the way, he cared for his chosen people despite their repeated acts of rebellion. And that is because God is true to his word. He always lives up to his promises. He just has to because it's his nature. In fact, he loved his people so much that he sent prophets who spoke hundreds and hundreds of times about a Messiah, one who would come to reign as their king. But despite God's promises, they still rebelled. And it's hard for us in this day and age sometimes to grasp but God actually loved his children so much that he disciplined them from time to time. That's what a loving father does, even eventually giving them over to their enemies so they could begin to see what life apart from God was truly like. So around 500 BC, God allowed Israel to be led off into exile, enslaved and oppressed 
by five different nations that you see up there on that graphic. All the while, God went completely silent on them too. No prophet spoke for over 400 years. It was a time of great sorrow, grief, and misery as Israel was separated from God by their sin. But then out of God's abundant mercy, he finally broke his silence, as we learned two weeks ago. He sent a messenger, this guy whose name is John, of course we know him as John the Baptist, who came with the news that the next part of God's master plan was now about to unfold. The long-awaited Messiah, the Savior and light of the world, was finally here. The one who had been foretold of more than 300 times over multiple centuries by the Old Testament prophets. The one who was sent to finally liberate God's beloved children from their oppression. And the Messiah, he came into the world as a child, taking on human flesh so that he could give light to everyone, engaging mankind in a more tangible, more relatable way. He would look them in the eye. He would speak truth to their ears. And yet, the world would not receive him because the world did not know him. Their sin blinded them to his light. Even his own, the nation Israel, would not receive him. Despite the fact that he fulfilled every single one of these more than 300 prophecies, they still wouldn't receive him. Born of a virgin in Bethlehem, as foretold, a descendant of David, as foretold, eventually sold for 30 pieces of silver, as foretold, more than 300 very specific prophecies, every single one of them fulfilled to a T. But because he didn't come the way that they wanted as a conquering king to make him a great nation again, they wouldn't receive him. They turned their back on him. But you see, he didn't come to free them from their physical oppression. That was never part of the plan. He came to free them from their spiritual oppression. As part of this new covenant, he came to forgive their sins and to remember them no more, as foretold by the prophet Jeremiah and others. And that is where we left things last week, as we considered whether or not we're just like the nation Israel in 2023. Oh, we know all about the Messiah, but we can so easily fail to receive him because we get caught up in all the material things of this world especially this time of year. And this is where we pick up our text for today. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So not everyone turned their back on him. There were clearly some who did receive him. And so it's important that we know what differentiates those who received him from those who did not receive him. And of course, John goes on to tell us, those who received him are those who believed in his name. So what does it mean to believe in the name of Jesus? Because this notion of believing in something gets tossed around pretty freely these days, especially with regard to Jesus. We say, yeah, sure, I believe in Jesus. I've heard about this place called hell, doesn't sound very nice. And I might as well hedge my bets a little bit, put my faith in Jesus. I'll just at least profess that. Maybe I'll avoid this thing they call hell. 
But when we study belief, we find it entails quite a bit more than a simple profession. Belief is defined as the conviction to place trust in something. And in this case, it's the name of Jesus. And in the Bible, a person's name stands for all that one represents, their identity, their character, all the authority that's been given to them. In other words, believing in Jesus' name is the conviction to trust first that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the one God promised. And second, that Jesus will accomplish all that God promised he would. Or in the words of Jeremiah's prophecy, that he would forgive our sins and remember them no more. So believing in his name involves a conviction that Jesus can do just that. And as we learn from Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, belief and behavior are inextricably linked. If you want to know what somebody truly believes, you just check out their behavior. Because people say all sorts of things, but their behavior actually shows you what they truly believe. So our own behavior is one of the ways for us to know if we truly believe in Jesus' name or not. Maybe think of it like this. There's this person who represents each and every one of us here who's stranded on a deserted and barren island. Now, off in the distance, the mainland is in sight. There's food, there's water, friends, family. There's life as we know it. But the island is surrounded by some pretty rough seas. Hungry sharks lurk all around. And if you're like me, not a strong swimmer because I'm not in the Navy, I was in the Army. (laughs) And I don't like sharks either. It seems like it's a fairly hopeless situation at this point. It's kind of the way the nation Israel probably felt whenever they found themselves in exile, or maybe it's the way you and I feel sometimes because of the way our sin separates us from God. It actually pulls out the joy in our lives. But then we learn of this bridge, a way to get to the mainland, a way to get to life, to reach that joy that seems so far away, so unreachable before. And so we become excited about the prospects of it saving us. It actually almost seems too good to be true. So we just stand there and we look at it. Wow, there's a way to get off of this island. It's gonna take us home. Surely this bridge will hold. It will liberate us from our bondage, from our misery. But for some reason, We just stand there, and we look at it. And so we never reach the other side. We're still stranded on that deserted, barren island. We say, but wait, I have faith in something that can save me. I have a bridge. But here's the thing. You might as well not have one, because you don't use it. You don't trust it. You see, your behavior shows despite what you say, you actually don't have any faith or any trust in that bridge at all. Because if you did, you would behave according to your belief and you would make use of it. Now this may sound a little ridiculous, this scenario, but it's actually how so many professing Christians actually choose to live out their lives. We have this Savior named Jesus, but we just stand there and we look at him. We don't ever engage with him. And it really doesn't make any sense because look at what John says happens 
to those who believe in him. He gave the right to become children of God. Children who've been restored to communion with their loving Father by Christ's blood shed on the cross. Children who are now heirs to the kingdom of God, meaning they're going to spend eternity in God's presence. Why? Well, simply because they believed in Jesus. A belief that is confirmed by their behavior, which essentially boils down to placing trust in the person, words, and works of Jesus Christ, that bridge. And then behaving in step with their belief. It's a belief that comes about as a free gift from God. There's nothing any of us ever did to deserve it. And how do we know that? Well, John goes on to tell us, these children of God were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And in these words, John makes it clear that man is simply unable to receive God on his own. Why? Because of his depressed state, or depraved state, because of his sinful nature. And in this list, we learn a couple of vital things about all that's now involved with being a child of God. First, being a child of God is no longer about bloodlines. It's no longer about being born Jewish, being born into the nation of Israel, because they didn't receive him either. Oh, they believed in a Messiah that the prophets had foretold, but they didn't believe that Jesus was actually the Messiah, that he was that bridge that would set them free. And so they just sat there. Second, likewise, being a child of God also does not happen by the will of the flesh. It doesn't happen when a husband and wife come together and decide to have children. That only results in physical birth. It simply introduces yet another sinner into a sinful world. So parents also cannot produce children who will become children of God. And if you happen to be born again and you have children who are not, then you know this to be true. Because no matter how hard you try, you can't will them to believe. Third, and John likewise affirms that we can't even will it for ourselves. Just for the sake maybe of avoiding hell or to make our parents happy or to relieve the anxiety in our lives about what might happen when we die. We simply cannot become a child of God on our own. Our sinful bent is just too strong. We may make a profession, but we'll probably just sit there, never engaging with the bridge, never being in a relationship with Jesus, not dialoguing with him in prayer, not reading his word, ignoring his continual knocks at the door of our hearts. At best, maybe we just go through the motions, but nothing ever really changes in our lives. We still continue to chase after the things of the world. Now, the only way to become a true child of God is to be born of God, to be born again, as we often talk about here. You see, there's nothing within man that can get us there. It's 100% from God. And I got to tell you, there's so much peace in that too. It doesn't hang on us. It's all because of God's promise. There's no amount of good behavior that will get us there. There's no amount of church attendance that's going to get us there. Belief in God is a gift from God. It's grace, getting something 
that we don't deserve. It happens when the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. That is God prompting us to respond to him. And we often refer to this as the middle voice, where God is always the first mover, and then we respond to him. Or in our example, we can no longer take being on that deserted island anymore. And so we repent, we get up, and we cross that bridge and we leave it. That's what lies at the heart of John the Baptist's message two weeks ago. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So by the gift of grace, God grants us faith in this bridge, his son. By the gift of grace, we believe in the name of Jesus, that he is the Messiah and that his blood will atone for our sins. By the gift of grace, God gives us his Holy Spirit to dwell within us and to help us grow in our relationship with Jesus day by day. You see, becoming a child of God is solely God's doing. It's a gift. It's the greatest gift of all. It's what we celebrate at Christmas. All we do is receive it. That's it. Not a thing more and not a thing less. We simply believe in his name. And then everything changes. As the Holy Spirit empowers our behavior to then come and step with our belief. You see, our behavior is not the reason for our salvation. It is the evidence of it. And to be clear, as long as we're in this world, we will continue to sin. And no matter how hard you try, you can't eradicate it completely. So don't ever think that if you sin, then you must not be born again. That's the voice of the accuser. Ignore him. Rather, each time you're convicted of your sin, you should actually see this as a really good thing because that means the Holy Spirit is working on you. Thank him immediately and then go on to repent. You see, a born-again life is a life of continually turning from our sin and turning to an even deeper relationship with Jesus. It's focusing our eyes squarely on him. And that is what we celebrate at Christmas. The gift of Jesus coming down from heaven to rescue us. It's a promise that God made that whoever believes in Jesus will not perish but will have eternal life. So if you happen to be sitting here this morning and you have questions about this, or you're pretty certain that you've never placed your faith in Jesus, I actually have no idea what you're waiting for. Honestly, it's one of these things where when we are confronted with this, we gotta take this opportunity, right? It's an opportunity for us to get up and start making our way across that bridge to a new life in Christ that we find on the other side. And for those who have received him already, who've believed in his name, who've become children of God, it is so important that we're reminded of that. That's something that we celebrate. It's an amazing sense of gratitude that we have, right? And that's why we wanna take some time right now to prepare our hearts to receive communion together because communion marks what this relationship is all about. 